And it's, it's a two-part series, which we have some time to time. This one's called Creed and Controversy. And the first part of that is called Creed. And these are going through basic Christian doctrines. And we're going to also, at the same time, uh, give to our congregation, give to you all, various copies of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And the, it comes in a, what's the, what's the big one? A thousand, 1500 pages? It comes in 1500 page, uh, version, and then 500, and then 150. Depending upon the measure of where you think you're at in spiritual maturity, you can select one of those three options. But we're going to be going through the basic doctrines, and the reason why I call it Creed personally is because of a Rich Mullins song. He has a song called Creed, and he talks about the basic tenets of our faith. And he says, my, this is my creed. We did not make it. I did not make it. It is making me. And that's what I believe about creed, about doctrine. It is not man who makes it. It is us who receive it from the, from the Lord, and God through us recreates us on the basis of these doctrines, these propositional truths that we hold to be the foundations of our life. And the reason why that is so absolutely important that we get that order correct, that it is our creed, what we believe about the divinity of Christ, the nature of this book that we have before us, the exclusive claims of Christ's salvation, the nature of God and Trinity, of God one and three, the reason why it's so critical that that is recreating us and it's not man who created that is because our feelings and what we feel, our emotions, go, they go all over the place. And I experience that in any given Sunday in worship. That I know, for whatever reason, the weeks, there are millions million psychological forces and spiritual forces. And some Sundays, you are primed for worship. And as soon as we begin worship, it's like lighting a match in a tinderbox and we are aflame in worship. And sometimes you come and you've had a hard week, physically ill possibly, or you've heard some bad news. And you drag yourself here, almost saying, I don't want to be there, but I believe I should be. And so I've come, which is awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. I would never say to anybody in that circumstance, what are you doing here with that attitude? I just think the faith that you have to just say, I'm so tired, I'm so exhausted, I don't want to go to be at church, but I believe that's where I should be. It's my sacred appointment to keep the Sabbath and make that holy. I love that. And that just would just cheer you on. But I know if you arrive on a Sunday, on some of those kinds of Sundays, the same words that we project on the screen Sunday by Sunday, some days you feel it, and some Sundays it just, you are so far removed. And you would sing a song about God's faithfulness, which you are not experiencing, or His love, which I do not currently feel, or the exalted glory of God in His power, which you just do not, cannot see at the present moment. It is so absolutely critical that you do not allow your emotions to reshape those words, but rather let those words reshape your emotions. Sing those words out, even if you can barely squeeze it, and believe on the truthfulness of those words. That creed is makes you. You do not remake the creed, or else Christianity becomes an immensely distorted thing that vacillates on the wings of our fashions and fads and spiritual fashions even and the varieties of our emotions and circumstances. Rather, for 2,000 years since the Christian church has been established, there's been a creed, a doctrine that we have believed in. 
which the gates of hell could not prevail against. And so we want to highlight them and so on about. Um, I need to because we just decided this morning, uh, Che and I, we make quick decisions, and to, to use systematic, uh, to use Grudem systematic theology. So I need to kind of figure out exactly how many Sundays we're going to go, because I'd like to go in tandem with that book. Because every single, single thing that we preach on and just put on the board, and we're going to talk about the divinity of Christ Jesus, then you'll have a resource in a book and Wayne Groom is the best that I know this for the church, for, for people who have not received theological training before. You'll have a book, a resource to read more about the Trinity or about the nature of the Bible or, church, or salvation history. And you'll have more resources depending upon how ambitious you feel, really. We'll, I think we'll have, we'll have all three options and you can choose which one. And I, I'm, I'm just pr- I will be in prayer for you, I promise, that at least I'm going to pray on five, that five of you go the 1,500-page route, that five of you will say, I want to go deep. I want to be a Christian that knows what he believes, that loves what she is convicted of. Hold on to that. Come what may. And so that is creed. And the second part of that, I won't talk too long about it. I'll introduce it more next year. It's called Controversy. And so we'll hit, so going from the timeless issues, we'll go to those that are most relevant for our day, homosexuality, abortion, politics and the rise of the Christian rights. In relation to that, how is a Christian to look at the Middle East conflict? And and actually, there's a few more that I have in mind. If you feel like that, I've been hearing so much about this on the news, and I am confused about how a Christian should hear this news or process through it, shoot me an email. And if I get enough on a certain topic, I'll, I'll preach on that topic. But we're going to go through creed and controversy. And the reason why I bring up the series that we're going to start next year is because as we wind down at the close of this series, at the close of this year, we wind down at the close of this series. And so we are beginning to kind of wind our way slowly down in the close of First Peter. And really, I've, I've loved preaching through First Peter because I've never known Peter so well. And it was always Paul is my great love, and I've just so grown to admire and love this person of Peter who has given us this letter. And so let me reiterate again that when he says this, in whatever translation you have, dear friends or beloved, my friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you too may be overjoyed when glory is revealed. These are not just the words of an abstract theological book. This is a personal letter which comes from the heart of the apostle. This is somebody who has faced so much persecution and suffered for Christ. And he has stood firm. And at the end, he is wanting to give us the benefit of his experience and it is the reason why that when we have begun this book, he began it in talking about suffering. And if you just want to look back quickly from where we started a few months back in chapter 1. And so he, do you, if you remember these great words in which he began this, and I'm, just, I, I'm going to start from verse 3 just because we have to back up and start. These are the first things that Peter launched us out in as we went and walked through this letter. He starts on praise. He may have been suffering. He may have been going through persecution. His life would be threatened. But the praise and the glory within him is greater than the circumstances around him. And he means for those circumstances not to overwhelm him, but that his glory in Christ Jesus would overwhelm his circumstances. And so he begins on this note of worship. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed. And he would say, in these last times, now in this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Beloved, dear friends, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor. When Jesus Christ is revealed, and you can hear these same echoes in these words as he's talking about, to not be surprised at these painful trials that you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. The familiarity in which Peter had with suffering, so that when suffering hit him, he was not thrown off balance, he was not overwhelmed, but he knew how to take suffering, which was appointed to him, and process it redemptively, and in the metathesis, he would be able to take suffering and work it and allow Jesus Christ to be in him in such a way that that suffering would come out back out of him in glory and praise and peace and strength instead of something that would completely distort and change him. And the first word that he gives us to prepare us for that kind of suffering is that to not be surprised when suffering strikes you in whatever single form. We've talked about various kinds of trial. And the word that I talked about when I, when I preached on verse 1 is that trials are going to come into your life as they already have in every single shape, size, intensity, and duration. There are physical trials. There are relational trials. There are trials at work. There are trials in your marriage. There are home trials. There are spiritual trials. But trials will come to you in every single way. And this word here is saying, don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard as if it was a strange thing. And I wonder if you hear that coming out of my mouth, if you look at me and say, I thought you said that you weren't a pessimist. You're sounding like a pessimist. Didn't, weren't you the one that said that, that you don't operate in such a way that, that you, know, you just kind of expect the worst, then if something good happens, then you're surprised by it, and it's a good thing. And that's the way pessimists are. And you said that you're not a pessimist. And I wonder if, if when you look at me, I think that most of you view me as an idealist. That is because I am. I'm an idealist. I believe in the ideals that Jesus Christ left for us, which is faith, hope, and love. And I believe that the ideals which Jesus left us with are the most difficult things to attain in the world. If you pass through your 70, 80 years, and you are still a being of faith, of bright hope, and of rich, gracious love, it is because you have fought to retain, to keep, and you have labored for those ideals. So I'm an idealist who believes that you have to fight for your ideals or they will fall, they will fail. There is a suffering and a trial that will try and rip those, rip those ideals from you. 
And they must not be met with surprise, unguarded, but you must be alert and know how to process through suffering and trial. So they do not warp you in such a way, but rather strengthen your resolve. How do you do that? And so we're going to go through this very quickly. And the first thing that Peter gives to us, that God gives to us through Peter, is want to define for us actually the kind of kind of suffering that he's talking about most specifically. And you're going to find that in verses 15 and 16. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even a meddler. So the specific kind of suffering that he's talking about right here in this passage, Peter is, is he's talking about that which does not result from sin which you committed. I think we have a little bit of easier time if it's sin that we committed. If I'm suffering because of my mismanagement of finances, of my mismanagement of something that I did to somebody, or something that I've caused to happen that is now falling back on my own head, then I think then I can somehow accept that because it's my fault. These are particularly sins that he's talking about that were not caused by any of your sinning, but it's talking about sin that which you were sinned against. He is talking specifically about persecution, but the reason why I want to expand that a little bit is because of the next verse. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear the name if you suffer as a Christian. I want to include in this topic of suffering as we talk about suffering this day, I want to include any suffering that you suffer as a Christian. And what I mean by that is that any kind of suffering by which you are being wronged, somebody is wronging you, somebody is in the this, in this scripture has insulted you, is maligning you, is spreading gossip around, back around you, somebody is trying to harm you in some way, and you are suffering because you cannot act as non-Christians do. In other words, if you, are, if you do not have God above you, you would, when you are hit, you would hit back. If that person is going to malign you and destroy your reputation, you're going to go back after them. And if that person has gossiped about you, you're going to gossip about them. But because you are answerable not only to another person, but you are answerable to God, you do not allow yourself that same response as a non-Christian. And you behave differently, and that injustice in which you feel that I am being wronged, somebody is harming me and they're making my life so difficult, I need to respond in a way that honors Christ and it is difficult. How do I do that? And so these are the words that God gives to us and how to process that suffering and to respond with grace and not in a way that is going to be retributive or vengeful. It's the first thing that Peter gives to us from God's Spirit. And first 419, he says, So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Let me read that one more time in 419. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So somebody is harming you, somebody has insulted you, somebody is oppressing you, somebody is after you, and instead of answering back in kind, you rather do good, and the way that you do good and allow yourself to turn the other cheek is it says that you 
must commit yourself to your creator, which is the person who created you. And you do that, it says, by committing yourself and that you realize that you've been, you are suffering according to God's will. What does that mean? That you are committing yourself to God because you are suffering in accordance to his will. I go back to Jesus on the cross because I almost can't go any place else. And there's that extremely enigmatic phrase as Jesus himself is being wronged in the most unjust suffering that any person has ever endured on the face of the planet. As Jesus is being hoisted upon the cross and he's being scourged and spit upon, insulted, mocked, beaten, whipped, and crucified. There is this phrase that comes out of him. He is internalizing suffering, injustice, wrong, hurt, persecution. And out of his mouth comes these words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I say enigmatic because I don't understand those words. What, it, what? When he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Is there ignorance and exculpation? Is there a fact that they don't know what they're doing? Excuse them for the harm that they are doing to the Son of God. And I would say no. So why does he say, Father, forgive them? They, do know, they know not what they do. What does that mean? Further confusion in my mind is that they look like they perfect, know perfectly well what it is they're doing. They know what they're doing. What does Jesus mean when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? What they do not know what they're doing is that even as they are crucifying him and putting nails through his hands, that by the very blood that is coming out of the Christ and onto them, by the very blood on their hands. Not only are they crucifying this man, but they are creating the means of their own forgiveness, of their own salvation, of the very crime in which they're committing. That they are not aware of. They are not aware of that even as they're crucifying the Savior, that even though they think that they may be in control over this man, that maybe Pontius Pilate is in control over them and is now in control over this man, or the Roman government, or the emperor, that overall is a God of redemption who is in control over all these things, and it is by his will this Christ is suffering for the redemption and salvation of all mankind. That they do not know. Jesus Christ at that moment of the cross is committing himself and saying, it is not primarily these people, not ultimately these people that are harming me. There is a will of God for the good that God is enacting even through that harm. It is a window that we get through all through scripture which goes all the way back to Joseph. Let me just bring you back in Joseph and put Joseph in a line with Jesus and then at the end I'll put us in line within this biblical line. The line that is drawn from Joseph, Joseph to Jesus to us is that when Joseph, if you will remember that his brothers sell him into slavery, put him into a pit, leave him for dead. So this person is rotting away in a prison, losing the very best years of his life, watching life slip away and it is because his brothers and it is much, much later in the book of Genesis where now he confronts his brothers and God's will has now so foreordained that his brothers and he should meet again. And you could imagine the seething, writhing anger 
that is within Joseph's heart, stewing in prison for my brothers who sent me here, who sold me out and sold me into slavery and bondage and let me lose the best years of my life, which I will never get back. Joseph's recourse in taking that suffering and returning it in a love and a compassion he showed his brothers were bound up in these words in Genesis. He looks back at his brothers, and you all know this. These are one of the most precious words in all the Bible. He looks back at his brothers who so harmed him, who so unjustly wronged him. And he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. His brothers are so afraid, saying now that Joseph is in power with Pharaoh, he's in this great position of power, only second to Pharaoh, is he going to now seek his vengeance over us? And Joseph said, what am I, in the place of God? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. If you didn't do that, we would never have been able to, God would never be in this position. Now I've been able to, by my wisdom, which I've given Pharaoh, store grain. And now allow me to alleviate the famine that is in our land. In every single way that you have ever been wronged or been wrong, it is not just a random event. It is not ultimately at the feet of the person that has wronged you. But there is an overmastering sovereignty of God where if you can see and look up and say, my suffering is ultimately by the will of God, there is some redemptive and good purpose What they meant for evil, God means for something good that is going to happen in and through my life. Peter admonishes us in suffering to commit ourselves to God by recognizing that we do not suffer just in a chaotic way, but over God's will, which cannot be overturned by any human will. It is the beginning of a solution that he gives to us. As we move through the scripture, he talks about, I really like the, I think the GM was reading from the ESV, talking about a testing, a testing that happens in suffering. When we ask, what is the nature of that good in which God is doing through suffering? If we say that there is an evil that is being done against me, but God is in that same suffering, in that same unjust wrong that is being done against me, working some kind of good, what good is that? And this is part of the solution. There is a good that God is giving to us. And it is part in here in these words, which I think will hit you fearfully at first, but we need to explore it a little further. It says, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the, be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The beginning part of that. It is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. We are to endure suffering because it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. I really pray and hope that that does not hit your ears too fearfully or too much in a way that would cause you to fret. Because when the Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear, God means that his perfect love would not make you afraid of judgment. This judgment, as it's talking about, that begins with the household of God, so that in a suffering, there is a judgment that we are undergoing, is not one where God is kind of sitting back before us 
and kind of testing us to think, are you going to make it? Are you going to not? Are you going to pass this test? It is biblical testing. And biblical testing is of, is of a different nature. Biblical testing is of the kind that we read, read about just earlier in First Peter. Biblical testing is of the kind of when you want to make an artifact that you are, just think is beautiful. And you want to make this thing that is beautiful and wonderful, like a silversmith or a goldsmith. And you see in the raw material in which you have before you, as you want to make this something beautiful, you see all this dross, all this impurity. And you know that the only way to get rid of it is if you were to test this, were to refine this in a fire. And so because of your love of this thing, of this gold and silver artifact, you put it in a fiery test by which the dross is burned off. Not because you're looking for it to fail, but you know that it will succeed. It is the kind of testing and suffering that God brings us through. And that is the way that we ought to hear this when it says that the judgment begins first with God's household, with the church. Is that this judgment, this testing that comes and comes to our life in suffering is the means by which God purifies us and drains from us, draws of impurities in our faith. My father once told me this, and he said, and I hear it, it's, it's almost the same transition that I went through reading this verse. My father said that, he said, whenever, whenever I kind of feel like that, that I'm, not, I'm being misunderstood and people don't understand me, and I, I tell my dad, and my dad would say, he would say these words to me, I think for actually all my growing up years, and, and my dad would say, he says, he says, Edward, he says, people, people will know, people will know who who you are. And when he said that, people will know who you are, that always made me kind of shake a little bit. I always heard those as kind of very fearful words, like, I don't, I don't want people to know. I'm scared people know who I am. And what he meant is that not everybody, not always, but in the end, people will know who you are. They will know what you're made of. They will know what's really inside of you. They will see you go through different circumstances. And the who you truly are, your character will emerge in the end. And it is that same confidence that God brings us, us through, suffering and testing. That who we are in Christ Jesus will emerge. And that's what he means when he says that the judgment begins with the household of God or from the church. There is a glory that God is trying to reveal in us through suffering. And as I've said it before, as we're going through First Peter, let me say this one more time. Pain, as we currently undergo, or as you will undergo, pain is always a pressure. Pain is a power. Pain, when it comes into your life, whether it is a physical pain, whether it is a relational pain, whether it is an economic pain, pain is something that disallows complacency. If you feel like I am floating in my spiritual life, in my character, I am being stagnant, it is a mercy and a love by which God says, I would refine you. And when I would not let you stagnate into rust, I would take the dross off of you and make you a beautiful artifact. Suffering and pain is something which pushes you and causes you to make decisions in your life and to see what is going to be revealed. This that God is revealing in you is two things in this final point. He Suffering shows Christ's majesty in our insufficiency and suffering shows Christ's mercy against our self-righteousness. Let me go over those two really quick. That suffering does not allow you to be in the comfort of complacency. 
but it must reveal something more deep inside of you. When it reveals the work of Christ in you, it reveals your insufficiency. Firstly, your insufficiency and Christ's majesty. Let me just say this. It's one of the most wise words that I've ever been given in my life. This was at a time when I was complaining about a certain kind of suffering that I was undergoing. That I would just, if it was so difficult, it was so hard. I felt like, I don't know if you've gone through this, where I would go to sleep and on my bed, I feel like I'm being racked with pain on my bed. That there is so much heat in the inner chambers of my soul and heart. That I feel like there are blisters inside of me. And in this time, I confided to my friend that I'm going through so much pain of a certain order. And somebody was telling me about how that another friend of theirs was going through an immense suffering because they were going through a physical pain whereas mine was emotional and I said you know what I would just so much rather take that person's physical pain I'd rather be without a limb or have cancer than go through the emotional suffering that I'm going through right now this person looked back at me and said one of the most wise words that I've ever heard in my life and he says Eddie you don't get to choose your pain we do not get to choose the nature the duration how or when we suffer that is up to the Lord. Because He has divine purposes that He knows as it appointed for our growth. That we would never have chosen. We would never have made this the shape of our pain or this the duration. But God who is over you as a father carefully has shaped every single suffering that you will ever undergo in your life. Taylor suited it down to the detail and the day so that it would create something wonderful inside of you. That it would reveal something fantastic in, 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 in you. And one of the fantastic things that he would reveal in you is that you are not sufficient in and of yourself. And there's a certain thing which adversity has which shows up the soul's in, insufficiency. That when somebody has wronged you, as somebody has come into your life and is maligning you, is doing something behind your back, is about making your life so difficult, and everything inside of you is screaming and saying, I want to hit back, this is so wrong. This is so wrong. I would accept this, but this is wrong. And you know that you must not. And you know that you, in and of your own resources, cannot possibly meet injustice with love. You, in and of your own resources, cannot take the harm this person is doing and fold it with care and answer back with grace. You do not have that ability, that resource within you. So when I say suffering shows up our insufficiency, what I mean is that we, in suffering, one of the gifts of pain in your life is it drives you to Jesus. If you have ever wanted to be bonded closely to Christ, you must welcome the fusing of a furnace by which your soul is bonded to Him, and it, which never would have happened without that pain and suffering. When we meet certain circumstances of adversity or trial in our life, our flesh immediately goes to work and says, I can handle that. And so I try and reorganize things. I try and solve it. If I can't solve it, I try and escape it. And there's something which Tim Keller calls escape sins, which I totally think that's a great word for it. I can't seem to do anything about this pain, so I'll somehow escape it through something which I know that I'm not supposed to be doing. And... For me, I know that when I'm watching too much TV, which I never had a problem before because I never had one, but Hulu is a blessing and a curse. 
And I know when I'm watching TV or, or watching Hulu, these things are enriching my life. They're drawing me more into life and giving me windows of perspective. And God is speaking me through this whatever program that I'm watching. And I know when that I am watching it, and sometimes I can't turn it off because there is a pain or difficult circumstances of which I am avoiding, which I am evading through this escape. Now, certain adversities, certain pains are the more difficult of the most un, more unjust variety. Hit us in a way that no amount of escape, no amount of going to the right or left is going to heal you or help you. There is too much injustice. This is just too wrong and it infuriates you too much and upsets you too deeply. It has upset your balance so much. You cannot evade it. You cannot deny it. And it forces you along a narrow channel, which at the end of which is Christ. And if you've ever begged and pleaded on your knees for more of Jesus, suffering is that gift, if you can accept it as God's will, that will lead you to him. This word here in this text that says that through suffering, we get to participate in the suffering of Christ. That word participate is the word that you will recognize, uh, even though I say it in the Greek. That word participate is the word koinonia. It is that word of fellowship. It is suffering, and in through the fire of that suffering, which you are driven and moved to Christ, and that you have no choice but to cling to Him, to cleave to Him. And the biblical promise that God gives you is that as we read earlier in 1 Peter 3.17, and that Peter was saying to us, it is better to suffer for doing righteousness than to commit an evil. It is better to suffer. In other words, instead of doing committing evil, hitting back, speaking ill of this person, if that's person speaking, speaking, spoken ill of you, this person has stolen something from you, you want to get back at this person, instead of doing evil, it is better to suffer in righteousness. Why? In verse 4.14, says, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, I would just expand to say, if you are suffering under the name of Christ, you are blessed. This is the why. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is a biblical promise. That if you are enduring that wrong, that injustice and that suffering, and instead of hitting back, you turn the other cheek. When you want to revile, when you've been reviled against, you are striving to love, and you feel like I don't have the resources to love in my heart, you can be promised and assured the spirit of God and of glory is going to rest upon you. I think that is an amazing promise. Do you not want to be the kind of person that when you are sinned against and when you are persecuted and harmed, would not answer back in kind, but that you would rather be a person that lights up and is at your best when people are wronging you and harming you. And the person that comes to my mind just immediately is Stephen. Stephen is the first of the Christian martyrs after Christ. And as he is being stoned to the very people that are stoning and killing him, they said that his face was like that of an angel. And that he is this person that even in that point he's committing his life to Christ. He is not full of anger and bitterness at these people that are taking his life, hurling stones at him. And what gives him the power to do that, it says in in the book of Acts, is that he was a man full of the Holy Spirit. If you choose not to respond in the ways of this world, but you choose to respond in the ways of Christ, there is a fellowship with Christ 
which is attractive, which draws down the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God and allows you, that gives you the power that you will need in order to withstand that suffering. Suffering shows Christ's majesty in our insufficiency. And let me go to the last one. Suffering, suffering shows Christ's mercy against our self-righteousness. Suffering shows Christ's mercy against our self-righteousness. Let me say these words to you. That even, and you can apply them in whichever directions that the God kind of lets them be applied in your life. Even when you are right, you could be wrong. Even when you are right, you could be wrong. What I mean by that is that when there is an altercation, usually there is some wrong on both parts. But the kind that we're talking about here is that it's really unjust. Something, Someone has really wronged you in an unjust way that you did not deserve. And you are in the right. They are in the wrong. You are in the right. And when I say even if you are right, you could be wrong, is that even if you are in the right in some kind of thing that has occurred, there is a right way to respond and there is a wrong way. There is a God-honoring response and there is a God-diminishing response so that even if you are right, you are in the wrong. This is what I have in mind when I say suffering shows Christ's mercy against our self-righteousness. This is the wrong way to respond to unjust suffering, to being wronged. You can get back up because somebody has knocked you down And you can get back up and stand upon your rights. I am right here. This person is wrong. So I have every right to be angry, to hit back, to seek revenge against this person because they have wronged me and I am in the right. It is one way to make yourself feel better. Someone has knocked you down and you are finding the power, you are finding the strength to get back up. And that power is rooted in the flesh. And when you stand upon your own self's right, it is almost the definition of self-righteousness. You can get back up and stand upon your rights in all of your self-righteousness. They are wrong. I am right. And what that will show is just that is what you are about, a self-righteousness. Response which Christ gives to us and which Christ has to open the door to us is this. There is a kind of a response that one says that in the Old Testament, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That when someone has stepped upon you and has knocked you down and you are seeking the power, you are seeking the resource which you do not have to get back up. How do you how do you do that? And instead of standing upon your own self and your own self-righteousness, the Christian can only do this. The Christian can only do this. The Christian must respond in this way and say, I have no self-righteousness upon which to stand. I have long ago at the cross learned to stand upon the righteousness of Christ who died for me and gave his life for me. It is not possible that I could stand upon my self-righteousness as if I have done nothing wrong and that I am in always the right. I must stand upon Christ's righteousness and stand upon grace. The gospel's way to understand this from Jesus' own mouth and lips is this. You must argue and reason with your own self 
I have been forgiven $500 million. How can I now take this person and throttle them over $50? That's, that's the way that the gospel opens for us. Christ has forgiven me $500 million upon my account and has settled it. I cannot now stand upon my own righteousness and take this person to task over $50. There is a, the way that God opens up for us and I thought it might be helpful if I put it down on a chart for you all. If you look at that chart that you have in your bulletin, that when you undergo unjust suffering and that you've been wronged, there are two paths that open up to you always. There are, always, there are no others actually, there are just the two. When you are undergoing unjust suffering, it is, it, there is a power in that pain, as I'm saying, that forces you into one of two directions and you are forced to choose. There is a path that begins with faithfulness, and I mean that a path that begins with faith. And there is a path that begins with fullness. Either when someone has knocked you down, you will get back up, standing upon your faith or standing upon your flesh in fallenness. If you stand upon your own rights, that leads to bitterness. If you stand upon faith, it leads to holiness. If you stand upon your own flesh, it leads to toughness. To stand on faith leads to tenderness. To stand on flesh leads to hiddenness. To stand on faith leads to openness. To stand on fallenness leads to craftiness. To stand on faith leads to honesty. The stand on fallenness leads to hurt. The stand on faith leads to healing. To stand on fallenness leads to despair. To stand on faithfulness leads to hope. Ultimately, to stand on fallenness leads to hate. To stand on faithfulness leads to love. And it's two different paths that are open to you in every single suffering of unjust wrong that you endure in life. And you chart a course in your life that goes along one of the two paths, either fallenness unto bitterness, toughness, hiddenness, craftiness, hurt, despair, and hate, or faithfulness unto holiness, tenderness, openness, honesty, healing, hope, and love. My belief is that every single person here is that you desire, as you go through the different sufferings, especially unjust wrong, my, my belief is that we do not desire in this church to be the kind of people that will stand upon our rights and so allow that to distort our personality, so allow those that have harmed us, wronged us, to reshape us in such a way so we become exactly like them. Rather, we would like to give Christ the ability to remold us, reshape, and even redeem the suffering that we've gone through so that we become a people ultimately of love. I'd like to bow uh, with you all in prayer and ask for the resource of God and Jesus to give us this. That every single person here in this room recognizes that we are already out of our depth. And it's not something that we are capable in and of ourselves. And that's almost precisely the point, actually. That unless Jesus does this and works this in our own lives... That grace is not possible for us. It is a work of God and not of man. So I'd like to give you this almost as a benediction even, uh, the words of First Peter. 
So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. God, we come before you humbly, Father, as a people who are prone to bitterness, not holiness, who are quick to be tough rather than tender, who hide rather than be open with the wounds that we've been dealt. And Jesus, we are counting upon your transformative grace. We are believing in the greater work of Jesus Christ, in the stronger power, God, of your Holy Spirit. Jesus, to soften us, to recreate us, to redeem us. We open up ourselves to you, God, in the strength that you give to us, that is in the power of God. We look to you, our Savior, our King, our Messiah, and our Christ. We say these things in Jesus' name.